everyone, and welcome back to Can You Hear Us? We're happy to be back for episode nine, just in time for the beginning of summer term and all the craziness that is writing your dissertation. To all the students writing and gearing up for the job search post-LSE, good luck and Godspeed. And wherever you are, we hope that summer is on its way. Or if you're lucky to be in the Southern Hemisphere, that winter isn't too gray. My name is Monica, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And my name is Madeira, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. So as we continue to explore activism in our last two episodes, we quickly came to the realization that two episodes cannot completely cover how international development and the several forms of activism are inherently interrelated. Indeed, the Cambridge Dictionary defines activism firstly as the use of direct and noticeable action to achieve a result, usually a political or social one. And when looking at the variety of activities that encompasses international development, such as poverty alleviation, gender equity and equality, climate change, what are some of the key factors in reaching these goals? I can tell you one, Monica. It's grassroots movements, opportunities for social enterprise, protests, advocacy headed by the nonprofit and sometimes private sectors, the revitalization of different knowledge systems, the importance of education and creating networks that are more inclusive, the availability and accessibility of aid and assistance to improve the freedoms of those oppressed or suffering from injustice and corruption. In short, it's activism, Monica. Absolutely right, Madeira. So in episode nine, we will continue to discuss activism, but through two different lenses. One through the Cambridge definition that explicates the role of activism as an important piece of the development sector by achieving set results. And two, through the idea of activism as a means to revitalize cultural practice and to foster identity and agency for those marginalized by the crises that you have just mentioned earlier. They also define the development sphere currently, thanks to the holistic perspective of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs as we know them. And there's no better topic that encompasses these ideas better than handicrafts. Yes, our dear listeners, I did say handicrafts. Today, the Can You Hear Us team wanted to showcase the importance that handicrafts, craftsmanship, and artisanal cultural practices have in social revitalization and economic development of Black and Indigenous people of color communities. Most especially, we want to talk about how the preservation of artisanal craftsmanship is tied to BIPOC communities and can operate as a form of activism in creating equity, identity, opportunity, economic stability, and global recognition of the problems these communities face. As always, Can You Hear Us acknowledges that we do not represent all women or femmes of color, that we can only speak from our experiences and perspectives, but we strive to include all women and femmes of color in our conversations. We are always open to feedback from our listeners. And with that, I hand it over to you, Monica. Thanks again, Madeira. So to start off with, according to Global Women Artisans, a platform with socially conscious websites showcasing artisanal women's work in the Global South, the artisan sector, which includes the buying and selling of items created by hand for unique functional and or decorative means using traditional and even sometimes culturally specific techniques is the second largest tool of employment in the developing world with the Aspen Institute reporting 65% of the world's artisan activity taking place in developing economies. Estimated to be worth over $32 billion every year, 
the majority of artisans are BIPOC women. By being both an income-generating activity and an act of cultural preservation, the Aspen Institute argues that the artisan sector should be considered an important opportunity to promote economic growth, especially for the women of color who serve as keepers of these crafting techniques. Moreover, the demand for artisanal goods from the global south in Western countries is apparent, enough so that many social enterprises created to provide employment for women to produce these artisanal goods cater to a Western high-income market. Yeah, Monica, this fascination with artisanal goods from non-Western countries can be seen very clearly in the artisanal textile history of India and Great Britain, where although the Industrial Revolution posed a shift from hand production to mechanized production of cotton textiles, the artisanal techniques used in creating Indian handwoven textiles was still considered superior in quality and strength compared to their British mechanized counterparts. Today, the Ministry of Textiles in India has recorded over 3.5 million people working in the handlooming sector. Additionally, not counting handlooming, there are roughly 1.7 million women registered as handicraft artisans. However, despite this clear demand in the global marketplace for artisanal goods, there are many barriers to women of marginalized identities to take part in the sector, despite having the artisanal techniques to do so. With the majority of women artisans in developing countries working informally in isolated rural environments, They lack the business literacy, tools, and resources to improve production and equally take part in this global marketplace. And in some cases, according to VCEELA, artisans turn out to be exploited for their skills by being underpaid, working in poor conditions, or relying on middlemen who sell their product in different markets but keep 90% or more of the profits for themselves. If the artisan industry can be a window of opportunity for women to not only preserve ancient practice, but also improve economic stability and livelihoods, how can injustices in the sector be eliminated and equity for artisans, especially women of color, be achieved? Absolutely right. And thank goodness that, as always, we have an expert with hands-on experience in this field to join us today and sort all of this out. So without further ado, today we welcome to the podcast Arushi Chaturi Khanna, CEO and founder of Loom Katha, an extraordinary social enterprise specialized in traditional Indian handloom weaving, most notably in reviving weaves near or extinct like their flagship Himru weave originally from Aurangabad. So Arushi is an economics graduate from Mumbai St. Xavier's College and an NIFT postgraduate. She began her career with Women Weave, an NGO focused on women handloom weavers' advancement in Madhya Pradesh before joining and heading the Enterprise Support and Craftmark programs at the All India Artisan and Craft Workers Welfare Association, where her and her team successfully revived the Mubar Kapuri weave of Uttar Pradesh. Arushi, please nod if I'm saying that correctly. <laughs> Thank you. Since then, Arushi has expanded her work in the revival of handloom weaves, both academically and practically, before founding Loom Katha in 2017. She has since received a number of accolades, such as the Acumen Emerging Talent Award in 2017, Emerging Women's Social Enterprise Award in 2019, and the WICCI National Handloom Council Award for Entrepreneurship in 2021, as well as furthering her career in natural dyes at the same time. She is currently training refugee women at Threads of Hope Cairo and has successfully created partnerships in this field with premium local lifestyle brands. Arushi, needless to say, we're so happy to have you on today. 
Thank you for that uh, glowing introduction, Monica. And uh, of course, for a brilliant context setting as well. You know, the, the, the handloom and handicraft sector is often neglected in the larger conversation around international development. And I think you really helped to nail uh, how important it is and how you know critical to the development i mean the holistic development of countries as well as specifically of women and you know young women who don't have opportunities for other kinds of income generation so thank you for having me and you know it's an absolute pleasure to be here today not at all the pleasure is absolutely ours we're so excited for this conversation I feel like as, as young women ourselves, we tend to be consumers of a lot of artisanal goods. And I think this deep dive, like you mentioned, in the sphere of international development is incredibly important because it's also young women like yourself usually heading these initiatives, if not also making the artisanal crafts from scratch. So we're very, very excited. And with that, I'll dive into the first question. So... To start off the conversation, we just wanted to uh, introduce our audiences a bit more into Lumcatha and hand looming, as well as the context of local for local. And so Lumcatha is under the category of social enterprise, which to people that might be new to this concept is a company that prioritizes a social mission under a specific theory of change. So seeing as we know that a lot of LSE students, especially within the sector of international development and in the department, are interested in the mechanisms of, behind social enterprises. Do you mind taking some time to explain the social mission or missions of Lumcatha and if you want its theory of change? So uh, when I started Lumcatha uh, after almost a decade of working with craftsmen and weavers across India, I think, you know, to summarize and sort of distill everything into the one sentence that really motivated me to start an organization was how can we look at significant increase in artisan incomes on a sustainable and sustained basis year on year. So our, you know, at the core, absolute core of everything we do is can we assure the artisan that over a period of one to three years, their monthly income will double. And uh, that is basically uh, whenever we choose to work with a cluster or we choose the kind of products we're making or the work that we want to do, this is the core ideology be behind it. Because, you know, just a, a marginal 10 or 20% increase in income uh, when the base level is so low, doesn't really produce significant change. I mean, uh, yes, there are artisans faced with a choice between no income and some income. So there is also that struggle to deal with. But I think overall, beyond everything that, you know, guides us, it is this principle that can we look at doubling artisan incomes over a period of one to three years. And the reason that we uh, preferred to go for for-profit model over a non-profit model is that uh, any of these crafts are essentially economic activity. So unless we as an organization are self-sustaining and we ourselves aren't motivated to improve continuously, we are doing a great disservice uh, to the communities we work with because uh, you know what happens when your aid finishes? unless you've created inherent uh, you know, systems of strength and of uh, robustness, 
it's i mean the people you want to work with are exactly at the same place after the project gets over so that really is what you know sort of defines us and just to give you a bit of context i find that india is a bit different from other developing countries in that we are a little ahead of the curve in terms of understanding social enterprises and you know the power that they have and so there are a number of organizations across the country who do work in this space as you mentioned the numbers are huge we have 5 million artisans or uh, women artisans and i think there are different uh, surveys but approximately 11 million artisans in total in the country so the aim was how do we differentiate ourselves from maybe other organizations that are in this space and not duplicate their efforts the idea was to look always at weaving crafts that are completely languishing that probably this is the last generation of weavers and the the craft itself may die out but how can we support these groups which are the most vulnerable and look at increasing their incomes and also look at creating the market or rather recreating the market for the craft because clearly there has been a decline due to a lack of marketability so really these are the two main principles uh, behind which uh, we set up lunkatha and uh, that's how that, and hopefully that these will continue to guide us going forward thank you i do want to push a bit on the fact that you're talking about you have to recreate a market around reviving weaves that had been lost so hand looming so my question is why is that the case why did you have to recreate a market macro factors as well as uh, you know specific factors related to a particular craft so in general if we look at why a craft declines or why uh, it's no longer you know a thriving or the artisan cannot earn a basic you know living income uh, from their craft one key factor is that because of the decentralized nature of the industry the raw material input costs become very high over time and as you know so for example with weaving as yarn uh, production becomes more and more centralized more and more concentrated around big industries access to raw materials for small artisans becomes very expensive so this is one thing that leads to a either the artisan then uses a substandard raw material or the product price goes high and he loses out his traditional market so i mean to say that maybe a shawl for example if we take aurangabad a shawl that was selling uh, for for you know uh, the local population becomes too expensive for them and the artisan can't reach say the us market or the european market where a premium would be paid for his skills so that's one reason the second reason is duplication by a machine and this is something that is not new at all in fact when you spoke about you know how the english mills produced cloth but you know the value of indian handlooms was still higher what the mills were effectively doing was copying indian hand block prints on mechanized printing so what we what is called the chintz print uh, is actually the indian cheat print which you know then became so popular that it was replicated and sort of dumbed down and that eventually kills the original market 
unless the artisan can pivot and thrive and you know find a new market and that i mean when you are a maker that is difficult and there is a lack of organized structure so these two i would say are the sort of larger problems uh, that face the sector and if i look at specifically for example himru which is what we have worked in intensively for the last 3 years these both these problems were there the artisans were using polyester yarn in place of the original cotton and silk so what happened was that the discerning customer who was willing to pay a high price for the product was not interested in it anymore and it was still prohibitively expensive because it was handmade for a less discerning regular customer so that was one problem the second was that within aurangabad itself there were a number of textile mills that came up and for many decades the mills thrived in their sphere and the handlooms thrived in their sphere but in around the 1980s the mills began copying the, the products made on the handloom so they started dumbing down and duplicating the aesthetic and also using the name so they would call it himru which i mean the whole thing of intellectual property in the handloom sector or the craft sector as a whole uh, you know it's non existent there is no real mechanism to protect your intellectual property you know so for a person who's not technically sound they're going to believe what is being told to them so it everything began to be sold as himru as long as it followed a similar aesthetic to the original uh, craft and in addition to this uh the with himru specifically there was a lack of infrastructural support uh, so there were government projects that did you know happen in that area but again like i said like when a project finishes there is no lasting mechanism that's been created to uh, sort of help the artisan continue and aurangabad where this craft is based is actually one of the first unesco world heritage sites in india so it was i mean it well connected there was an amazing opportunity for marketability but it got usurped by this you know sort of lax attitude which resulted in everything being called himru and the original craft really uh, suffering as a result of that so so it's generally a number of factors uh, for example if we look at tassar weaving the reason that that's another craft of india it's, it's made with wild silk tassar is a wild silk it was the you know the cultivators of that silk didn't want to do it anymore because it was arduous work and it was very labor intensive so until another organization stepped in and actually mechanized that part of the process the industry struggled but that innovation enabled the sector to sort of grow and uh, stabilize i mean each craft has its own peculiar problems as well and which is why uh, i always say that there is no homogeneous solution for this sector i mean uh, you know the in, in policy there is this habit of clubbing all crafts together but the point is something is textile something is leather something is metal something is wood you can't really just put them all together because they're made by hand and they should sit with uh, those uh, organizations or those parts of the government who are qualified to handle that particular sector but unfortunately that's not the case at least in india
I, I definitely feel that a lot can be done at the macro level as well, uh, you know, to solve some of these or mitigate some of these issues. Yeah, and, and then, I mean, that speaks to what you said about Lumkatha's model and the idea of this being an essential economic activity that needs to continue because it's yeah. both not only, I mean, we're thinking literally like the livelihoods and the amount of money that artisans can actually afford and continue to be part of that market. But I also think of it as it's almost like a cultural way of keeping things continuing yeah. and as a need, right? I'll say like, you know, as an American and also someone that loves clothing and material, all of the ideas of textiles and the different weaves that can be done is very foreign to me. But I also wonder about if there was such a high quality when it came to the specific hand looming in India. And it feels, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like Indians in general are also very cognizant of this kind of material and the way that they're made. How was it possible? Was it simply because of price that the mechanized duplicates of these weaves were really able to take over? I just feel like you would, it's like sacrificing quality, which I feel like is culturally a very important thing. So, well, not to say that, you know, I think the mechanized sector has its own importance and there is very a very high quality of work that is produced on machines definitely right. I mean, there are beautiful textiles that are made uh, in, in in that sense as well but i think traditionally yes i mean if we look at the pre-colonial era uh, you know india was renowned the world over mm -hmm. for the quality of its textiles and mechanization provided definitely a more efficient way to service the needs of a growing population, a post-World War population. You know, there are qualities of mechanized textiles that handmade textiles don't have. There, the reverse is also true. There are handmade textiles that have qualities that the mechanized don't do. But the initial uh, sort of uh, nail in the coffin for Indian textiles was a lot of the colonial policies that inherently were made to uh, sort of reduce the competitiveness of Indian textiles. But I mean, one can't really, uh, you know, keep on harping on the past. And post-independence, I think definitely for the Indian consumer, price was a, a very significant factor. And because, so, so the gap kept widening because the handloom sector continued to face these problems of raw material and, you know, lack of organization, lack of marketing, lack of market knowledge ability to, you know, uh, to keep up with the times or to keep up with demand. A very simple thing is most handloom clusters do not have state-of-the-art tailoring units alongside. So there's beautiful textile produced, but then it has to go somewhere to become a finished product. So all of those things post-independence continue to widen that gap in India. And the Indian consumer is the, I mean, the average consumer is very price conscious. And, you know, it became this sort of losing battle that handlooms could not keep up with what uh, was happening, you know, in the mechanized sector or sort of maintain their identity. They, they began trying to replicate or, you know, trying to uh, sort of something that would seem like a mechanized product. And in general, there was, there were many systemic issues that 
caused a further widening of you know the gap but, but again i feel like this the wheel has turned uh, because if we look at the last 10 or 15 years especially with the online uh, you know growth of online commerce and social media and things like that a lot of lesser known crafts who face this lack of connect have been able to connect with consumers and there is a growing appreciation for crafts there's also this sense of you know going back to your roots and understanding your heritage so yeah i think i'm i'm optimistic about the future because i feel like we finished a a down cycle and now it's sort of towards an upward trend so you just mentioned heritage which segues brilliantly to our next question but you also mentioned before chintz which if i'm not mistaken aside from being hand like a hand loom weave it also had this extra component which i think the british called india gloss in which you crushed shells and glass and you put it over the weave to make it glossy. And so in that sense, even within hand looming, I feel like you're not just hand looming, there's a whole bunch of other techniques that you're innovating and gaining. And so when hand looming is lost, then all of these are lost with it. And so based on those two points, I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the significance of hand looming to both the preservation of Indian cultural identity and also as we've been talking before to its economic activity at the artisan level so yeah, i i do want to address the point you made about you know how there were a lot of ancillary industries around the weaver that are equally important and which is why when we say the number of artisans is 11 million that number is very incomplete because it doesn't cover all of these industries and it is like for weaving i mean for the weaver to sit at his loom there are about seven processes before that and seven people involved in working with the yarn uh, before it reaches him and once he finishes weaving there are another three or four processes involved before it reaches the customer so it's 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 an entire value chain and unless you know you can look at it in its entirety a lot of projects fail because they simply look at the artisan without understanding the entire uh, in the, I, i would say i would use the word industrial uh, though it is you know connected with machines these days but look at the entire industry around the artisan all of that has to be all the pieces have to fit together otherwise you know it doesn't move forward so yes you know this goes into what you were talking about because for example when we talk about indian wedding sarees or like what an, a t- typical indian bride would wear that is something that is generally woven in an area called banaras and it is generally woven by muslim weavers for hindu brides and this is something which has been happening down the centuries and it's such a beautiful you know syncretic part of our culture which we stand to lose when we pick up a machine made product and uh, you know though it it may look as beautiful and i think that the 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 traditions of weaving definitely i mean i think it would be an entirely different podcast on its own just to talk about each uh, textile and you know the history behind each of it and in in india for example we have over 250 different types of hand weaves and this is just my top of the head estimate i'm sure you know the number could be far higher 
and we do understand as indians which region which product comes from and that does tie into a very intrinsic part of our identity and and i was actually reading an article by an uh, uh, an article on uh, the textiles of the arab region and how similarly in egypt uh, you know women recognize where other women have come from based on their attire so it's something that is all over the world really that uh, you know you have something that defines you and that traditionally was made by you so a lot of cultures have this idea of girls beginning to work on their trousseau from a very young age and then that is what uh, they carry with them once uh, they get married so there are all of these you know very quaint concept in- inevitably are lost uh, as we modernize and you know we lose a lot of sort of mal practices as well like patriarchy and you know the idea of reinforcing the concept of marriage through these things so it's it's a two sided argument i think but uh, definitely i feel that we uh, we need to preserve some sense of you know of where we came from because uh, that's what eventually differentiates you and you know it's so intrinsic to who you are whether you realize it or not right it should just be about your i guess i mean it's happening already it's more about your own personal style and identity and i feel like we could do a whole podcast about the marriage revolution in india in general so i think you know i think that there are so many complexities there and i do want to go back to when you were talking about the ancillary industries that involve the supply chain that goes into weaving you gendered the weaver as a he and so i'm curious is is weaving is specific handloom weaving gendered do women do most of the handlooming now was there a time where it was mostly men are there specific handlooming I'm, i'm really curious about that so it was uh, traditionally it was a family activity so oh, everybody okay. from the you know the 5 year old kid who's winding yarn oh, on fun. a bobbin to the uh, matriarch or patriarch of the household who's uh, you know counting the threads to lay out uh, on the loom been a family activity and it but the the obviously the main weaver was typically male apart from the northeast of india where it it's always been traditionally women mm. so it was uh, sort of the payment went to the man if i i would right. put it totally so that that is uh, you know so you would say the weaver is a he though it may be a a family enterprise but over the last a few decades when weaving began to be less and less lucrative quite often the male member of the working age group would migrate to the city to do other kinds of work manual work or you know informal sector employment mm. and the women would continue to weave at home so it became like a secondary income uh, for the women and over time a number of organizations realized the value of this and promoted or upskilled the women to take on the role of being the primary weaver mm, okay so 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 now largely uh, in many areas it is the women who weave but still the most highly skilled or the most complex kind of weaving is done uh, by men arushi you have so much understanding and i I'm not trying to, you know, blast you in terms of how incredibly 
significant and important it is that you understand the history and like the mechanisms behind hand looming. But hypothetically, if I wanted to go into this industry and, and, and take part in it, I feel like there's a lot of missing parts because I am not inherently from India. And so, you know, there's a lot of discussion within international development, which I think is incredibly relevant and goes to what you were saying about how like the hand looming and even just in general, the artisanal industry just gets put aside when it comes to international development is that localization is being really promoted. And especially by these huge Western funders. And it's being done because they're wanting to do more equitable and inclusive programs that fit the needs of those that are actually needing it, which in this case are the artisans themselves. And just seeing that you are an Indian woman who has worked in this for years at a very grassroots level, and then you have taken it and you've created an enterprise that is a, an essential economic activity for these artisans in order to continue to revitalize and tell the story of why these hand loomings are important. And so for me, I would fit you under this category of localization. And I, I mean, we can talk about that if you feel that way or not, but you know, just from your own experience with your having that positionality and reaching that idea, what, what are the advantages of you having this you know, specific personal connection to reaching the mission of Lumkatha? So I think that this, how should I put this argument is pretty complex and maybe because India is so diverse we have case studies to show proof of concept of both so for example the largest employer of artisans today is a brand called Fab India which was set up by an American gentleman who came to India on a Ford Foundation project fell in love and stayed and but hmm. his his initial market was outside of India. His initial company was an export house. And then in the 90s, when the Indian economy liberalized and there was a lot of economic growth, they also were able to tap into that and they have a huge retail presence across India. And similarly, there's another uh, brand called uh, Anoki, which really began uh, reviving block printing, the craft of block Mm. printing, which is today a huge industry. It's, I think, the most successful handcraft to be, you know, revived and really taken to uh, to a large scale. And again, it was a foreigner who married an Indian prince and set it up. The first organization I worked for, Women Weave, my, the, the founder was an American who, but who spoke more fluent Hindi probably than me and who, who knew much more of the craft than I knew at that point. Right. So, so, so I think there are both. And I think also if we look at even with, so for example, Himru, our first order came from a brand in the U.S., who mm. heard about this story and believed in it and were willing to take a risk on us. Right. So uh, it's it's a very interconnected world. And at the same time, I have seen a lot of projects where there are international consultants, you know, and the budget of bringing those consultants to India and they're staying in India and traveling around India. Is more than the budget allocated to the artisan uh, himself, you know, the group of artisans themselves. And they're very snap projects, you know, it's okay, you did something, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. 
you you didn't have much context and i don't blame you because you come from somewhere else and the artisan is not able to communicate with you and it it completely it's like a it's like a lose lose situation for everybody so 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 there is that too and in that sort of situation definitely having an indian person who speaks the language who understands the heritage and the context is beneficial so you know so i think that both have the, the core of it i think is efficiency if you can really uh, deliver efficiently uh, you know this this filter of where you're from it doesn't have so much meaning anymore when i started working in egypt i i had all of these uh, hesitations that you know i i don't speak arabic i don't look arabic i i have a skill set which i'm you know going to teach people who have no clue about it but you know we could make it work and i think that that, that eventually that that's what's important you need committed people who are going to accept that it's a hard and slow road and who are in it for the long run and based on this efficiency concept which i completely agree on it's about having an involved individual that wants to make a change and that effectively sees it through or sees it part through but leaves it at least to have sustainable and ethical mechanisms that then just reproduce themselves i think that's the goal in some kind of a utopia i've designed but you mentioned before as well how it's important to create policy that is specific to certain handicrafts so you can't put handicrafts or artisans all together because they have different needs their value chains are very big and everyone in that value chain is interconnected what will have specific needs so in that sense when we're talking about creating mechanisms that will reproduce themselves and will be upheld by ethical and sustainable governance and essentially through policy and accountability mechanisms do you think that the uh, local for local or outsider versus local perspective then does that shift i think that there is a space for both and that again it goes down to the granularity there are some crafts for example in india that are very very local in context there are certain weaves that uh, you know certain tribes wear at a certain point of the year for a certain function and i feel that that is that is what they were meant for so it has its merit but at the same time there are a lot of textiles that can have a global appeal that that do have a global appeal and that i mean we are we, we saw that i mean with himru it's been a learning experience because it is a the aesthetic of the craft is very predominantly a mogal indian aesthetic so the mogals you know ruled medieval india and i would never have thought in my wildest dreams that that a us customer would you know they might say oh it's beautiful but would they buy it and we were able to work on colors and and textures and things like that to ensure that the craft didn't lose its value but it became appealing to a, to a different customer and to a customer who was willing to pay the price that the artisan deserved so so i i really think again that there is no single solution um so i i i know that thailand ran a very successful a program called otop uh, which is basically one craft one village 
so they developed like uh, these sort of villages as being centers of excellence for a particular craft but that has start you know they they did try a bit of that in india but it didn't really work because it wasn't they needed outside linkages they needed interconnectedness to develop the craft so i think that there are certain solutions that have to be found locally so for example the supply chain making that efficient creating that uh, you know ancillary industry that is something that is very that cannot be done from remotely or from an alien context but when you go to marketability and you go to sort of the front end of the craft there is merit in both the the heritage and the local the traditional customer of the craft as well as a new customer who who for whom it has a different meaning and and for a cluster to survive i think they have to look at both uh they can't you know rest on their traditional market which could collapse any time so i was reading that in egypt for example there is this village called nekada which was uh, weaving linen from pharaohic times and but over the last say 100 years their main market was in sudan uh they were weaving this ceremonial cloth for the sudanese population but when there was political unrest in the 80s overnight that market just shut down so and 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 the the, the weaver struggled for decades and i think it it's still sort of you know they're still sort of figuring out how to you know sort of revive it to its full potential so yeah so i think that we should be very mindful of not trying to put something in a box i think you're right and and even talking in within global markets and you know we're going back to this same idea of seeking identity and heritage even though it might not look exactly like what it is and i think of do do we do we say indians from the diaspora would that be considered the way that we talk about indians that have moved to other places in the west and i i think that this is a very western idea kind of um and so i want to frame it as that that you know there is a sense of wanting to find identity and looking for that and i think one of the easiest ways for a lot of people is through dress and pieces that are maybe from where they were their families were ancestors from you know years ago but still means a lot to them and sentimentality and so I, i'm speaking at it as a bipoc which is a very i think is a very american phrase to talk about black and indigenous people so i want to recognize that here is that we're I kind of putting this on you know, and I recognize that that's not completely correct. You know, in that case, what place do you see, what place do you personally think that this artisanal work is forming this identity and transmitting it to those that are not no longer living in the country that they're from and how does that really help transform those identities in those di- diasporas? you know as a somebody who's uh, lived most of her life in india and like i was telling monica you know initially uh, the first time i heard this phrase woman of color and somebody identifying herself as a woman of color was when i went to canada for a conference and i thought it was really odd because i i didn't want to be put in that box i thought this is a conference for women and i don't want to create this barrier by saying i'm a woman of color because in india we, we were all women of color for if you right. you know if you look at it that way so 
I personally, it's a, it's a very personal choice. I find these definitions a bit limiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not, I would never identify myself as such. But I do understand that, you know, in, in a society like America, where there has been this color divide, and there is there has been a lot of racism around color. Not to say that there isn't in India. But yeah. you see, we are all with different shades of brown. So it's right. not so stark. It's not, you know, that, that it's yeah. <laughs> so no, so we have this idea of, you know, using a fairness cream to make yourself fairer and things like that. I mean, that that sort of uh, you know, covert uh, attitude is there. But as you know, sort of more educated or we would like to consider ourselves more aware, you know, uh, parts of the population, we I would not put myself in those boxes Mm. Uh, and um, when I look at and I have I've lived for quite a while now outside of India and uh, you know lived in a literally in a suitcase with one foot in the country and one foot outside and interacted with a lot of uh, Indians who uh, live outside of the country in second and third generation of course there is this sense of identity and where do we belong and uh, you know, uh, what are our roots? And a lot of, in these days, a lot of this sort of false patriotism around what is India and what is, you know, a very rigid idea of India. And, that, and, and the more I interact with other cultures, especially the Eastern cultures, so if you're looking at, you know, uh, the Arab world or the African continent or India, Traditionally, our ideas have been much more fluid. Our sense of identity is much more fluid. Our textiles have always been traded. The Silk Route was based on the trade of textiles, the exchange of textiles. So holding on to something and saying, this is my identity and, you know, this defines me, uh, is, is, has traditionally not been, I would say, our culture. The more I read and the more I understand about how, you know, intermingling was encouraged and how we've, we've always had, uh, you know, conquerors from different lands and uh, rule and everybody has been assimilated uh, into and, and I see this in, in across a lot of Eastern cultures. I'm not claiming that this is some uniquely uh, Indian or subcontinental idea, but I feel that that, you know, we are sort of now trying to put ourselves into this box largely I don't know I mean I don't have enough knowledge to speak with authority on this but my personal perception is that we're trying to now develop this very uh, boxed in identity which uh, which is not really our identity so yeah so I personally think that that you know everybody should wear our textiles and the more people who wear them uh, the better it is for our weavers so so I do think that really saying that oh this is mine and you know only my people can wear it is 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 uh, is a really stupid uh, idea to have no I think it's great that you Thank you for telling us about this, because I think it's something that we always, and Maya can also speak to this, we always have this discussion because categorizing is a very Western thing to do. 
And when we have used women of color in situations, obviously we're talking in a very more Western sense because we were at a university that is very predominantly makes those divisions very clear and a culture that makes it very clear that there are divisions. We always get annoyed because there is a sense of both of us having an idea that the, the we're not monolithic there. <laughs> we all are from different places. Even within those specific areas, we are not the same by any means necessary. And so I think that there's sometimes a lot of political jargon that we want to make sure that we're politically correct about talking about these issues when really at the end of the day, like this is something that is very American or very British and is something that those that identify within these areas that are Eastern have, you know, have to deal with and the rest of the world doesn't. And then that is something that we are constantly talking about back and forth. And I think it's a duality that um, many people don't really understand. And, you know, I, I, I'm just glad that you brought it up. So thank you. Yeah. I also think it's funny because maybe our point of view is we are both mixed and obviously our mixes exactly. are very different, but we, especially on the terms of duality, I think we, we've both experienced that and growing up and trying to figure it out. And so going into a setting where you're now talking about terminology like women of color and BIPOC and people of color has given, in a sense, it gives you a sense of I can now articulate maybe experiences or feelings in a better way. But it is like you have to be cognizant that this has come from a certain place and it has its own history, why this lexicon arose and our positionality within that lexicon and that broad spectrum because I'm just saying this to say I, I agree with both of you I think it's it's so the spectrum is so wide that it is very limiting sometimes when you use these words but at the same time they kind of give you the articulation you need to describe certain things you yeah, know yeah. I mean India is also very fractured so uh, we have mm-hmm. all sorts of uh, you know uh, engendered biases and you know discrimination but I think that if I really look like very big big picture it's always all of these definitions are quite fluid it may be you know it may be our way our way of coping or you know the way we've survived over centuries but but these definitions do evolve and they do sort of merge and there are a lot of uh, converging areas within that so and and i think we should encourage i mean we should encourage that so so if for example even when we we do surveys or we map an, a group of artisans i have always been hesitant to map you know religious data or you know uh, we largely look at income I mean that is the core and you know what are the family assets and and things like that but I, I I do know that a lot of agencies have specific you know they want to work with specific communities where then this data enables them to help those specific regions so it, it has its merits I guess yeah I want to go back to like you know the idea that we were discussing earlier and you made very clearly that you know, at the end of the day, like, yes, 
the consumer is where rather whether the consumer is wanting this material for just simply to wear or if it's for a specific cultural tradition it doesn't matter you're just happy that the consumer wants it and i think that you know when we're looking at it that way a lot of social enterprises like we've said have a specific mission that they're trying to get across and sometimes what happens is the kind of more capitalist side so wanting to create something that has the same quality that reaching the demand that's been asked we kind of have a mission dilution happen where you know that we kind of push the mission aside and so i don't know i think you've spoken to this kind of already but like have you seen this kind of mission dilution whether have you have you seen it kind of happen at lumkatha or maybe maybe in your own experiences with other groups that are doing similar work as you definitely i think that you know when you start out with an and this is i mean it's a note to everybody who wants to start their own enterprise that you start out with with something that is in your head or on paper and of course ground reality is has its own life and there is a need to be nimble and to keep your head above water at least the initial years and eventually it boils down to the founder or the founding group and what what are the you know what what are the non negotiables for them and what 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 are they willing to let go and how where does that i mean and and that's a very personal choice i mean where does it lie i think that and what compulsions make you take a certain decision also because um, eventually you know you're not operating in a silo you have to understand your uh, you know as as an entrepreneur how do you run your own kitchen so i think that th- there are there is definitely a lot of cases where a lot of mission dilution happens but it's not always for these noble reasons it's quite often for you know for a certain round of funding or for a certain uh, sort of uh, materialistic gain and one should be very self aware i think that this is a very very micro aspect of you know what we've been talking about but it is your uh, ability to navigate that moral dilemma uh, i i worked with an organization that you know started off wanting to work with artisans but because they had funding and they needed to show some numbers you know they started selling everything from mangoes to i think i don't know bags and things that just to show those numbers and keep the the funding agency uh, you know satisfied so i think that you but, but we've never had that issue at lumkatha i mean i have refused funding if i felt that i couldn't meet those targets and i've been called risk averse and uh, you know uh, not willing to scale uh, control freak wants to uh, keep things uh, you know she she's not going to achieve the impact because she's not willing to you know take these risks but uh, but that is a conscious decision that i have taken that as long as i can deliver what happened was for me when i worked with a lot of i worked on a lot as a consultant on a lot of ngo based kind of projects i traveled a lot i met a lot of artisan clusters and i always felt but i have never gone back and i have this and i have an honest conversation with a lot of people who are trusting me with very personal information i mean if somebody walks into my house and asks me how much do you earn 
I mean, I may not want to tell them, but you know, they, they trust you and then you never go back. And I, I always felt this was something that bothered me that, you know, why am I even there? And so with Loom Katha, we, I, I decided very early on that even if it's a limited, very, very limited number of people, we are not going to stop after at any point. So only when I'm sure that I can sustain this community, however small, month on month, year on year, over time, you know, will, will I sort of jump in there? And if not, then that's a very clear understanding that this is a transactional agreement for the purpose of this, you know, particular order that we're doing or this particular project that we're running or whatever it is. But we know that there are enough players in that system to continue to the, the artisan itself is in a successful ecosystem. So in the initial days before I started the Hindu project, before we could raise funds, to support this long, you know, very long gestational period project. I worked with a lot of more successful artisan clusters where I was one of many designers, but I knew that their, their looms will continue running. So it's not like I'm making a promise to them that I cannot keep. So, but with Himru, every weaver we have worked with, we continue to work with till today. That is my personal sort of, uh, the way I saw it uh, but uh, that again I mean no uh, judgment on anybody else's yeah. uh, choice of but but to be fair Arushi like to to go I mean that idea of having a actual rapport that lasts longer than you know simple not simple complex very personal questions that you're asking groups that is a part of your positionality of understanding that that needs to be not done and I think that a lot of the times groups that are and I, I mean I you know I'm speaking very candidly but I see that a lot of times with organizations that are owned by those that are not from the areas or even the country that's there is that they seem to think that you can ask these very personal questions and I even see the international development too I mean when we're looking at you know the um, DHS and how the types of questions that are asked in a very very in a very not delicate fashion about what's happening in a household surrounding health you kind of realize that a lot of the times, if you're going to get the answers that you want, you have to have somebody there, but what that person that, even if they're from there, they're still coming in and not, uh, you know, they're not from there. They're still going to leave and they're probably never going to come back. And I think that that is something that is very inherently you being very conscious of. And I don't think a lot of people are within international development. I think that that is a, idea that I believe is why people are pushing the whole local for local idea. But, and I also think at the end of the day, what happens is a lot of data gets fudged. I mean, yeah. Fudged. I mean, truly. Yeah, it, that too. Just, yeah, this, like there are people surveys, so just taking off the, okay, they get a sense that probably five people said this. So maybe the next yeah. five are also going to say this. And the, the, the data in the development sector is, I think, very flawed 
in in the artisan sector in india it's it's i i actually uh, somebody uh, gave me a survey uh, done in 1962 of the craft of himru hmm. and i saw the level of detailing it was a government survey you know each part of the craft had been documented with with far less resources at that time and i look at the quality of the national uh, you know handloom survey that comes out now and there is nowhere near that level of detailing and uh, you know specificity right. so i just wonder you know yeah and that's used for policy correct is that why the survey is done i assume that's yeah right. <laughs> yeah yeah referenced in policy yeah i mean that's the sort of you assume yeah that eventually policy but but i mean like this is a definite you know issue that needs to be addressed especially when we're talking about i mean specifically in the artisan industry because a lot of the work that's being done granted you have you have created an enterprise that is more formal but a lot of it is informal correct like you know you, there's no way to really track how much someone is able to actually get from their work because it can depend on so many different factors yes. including access to the market yeah i i think that there needs to be a lot more i think evaluating and showing the impact is really important for a lot of these projects but also that there needs to be an understanding that there needs to be a more interpersonal understanding of what needs to go into place in order to actually have these be sound and really show the results i think uh, empathy i mean it boils down to yeah, uh, really uh, you know inculcating empathy in in the people who are who are doing this uh, sort of work right yeah yeah piggybacking off what you said madira which was that and and what arushi's been saying is like you have to create empathy because to empathy and also being if i make a human <laughs> being humane <laughs> you actually get more effective policy or more effective production because the people are being looked after there are mechanisms that you know make sure that they're okay etc however you did mention that something that is i would say almost unique to the artisan sector maybe in this century is the fact that you can't have intellectual property so even if a specific craft is made by a specific community in a specific village the intellectual property isn't there and so in turn and what we've discussed at the po- podcast is that they can face exploitative or inequitable practices when it scales up to uh, cater to a global market or even a national uh, market that's growing for instance india is one of the fastest growing countries in terms of population so market's going to be enormous i just wanted to ask if you've seen any of that happen and what you've done to mitigate it or how do you think other companies could mitigate it social enterprises but also how can consumers and producers work together no it is like i mentioned i mean you know with himru we've seen it and it it's it, it's not only with the artisan sector but even uh, the larger fashion uh, industry uh, that you know so in india for example the wedding market is a huge market and there are certain designers whose work is highly coveted and there are certain shops who uh, whose business is to tell you we've made the first copy or the second copy of xyz designer's work so their whole business model is based around copying the premium designer and 
and I and I look at and uh, you know I read an interview by one of these designers and they said that uh, you know the only way we combat that is to continuously innovate so you know I, I know that the next my next collection is going to be something new and I have to catch the customer before the copyists do and uh, there is no real you know redressal mechanism mechanism and and you know imitation is the best form of flattery so uh, so that's uh, but but because they already have a secure market what happens with artisans is it, it directly impacts their livelihood and their uh, success and I really don't know what is the solution because there doesn't, I mean, un unless you keep, you know, apart from consumer awareness and continuously educating the consumer and continuously talking about what the original is. And in that sense, I really feel that uh, social media in the last few years has done a great job in that a lot of the lay consumers in India can now talk about different weaves and identify one from the other and things like that and and that eventually uh, you know if they are asking enough questions to understand what is authentic and inauthentic eventually those who are not authentic will either find a different way to market their products or end up coming back to the original artisan and asking for uh, the authentic uh, product so, so I, it's just I mean it's a long and slow road and it's just I think education and keeping on uh, reiterating those points um, you do have geographical indication and you do have a lot of quality marks and things like that and I think it's all good like the more we can do and the more we can put put that information out there the, the better it is yeah it's benefiting everybody to take an informed decision I mean you it, right. uh, every customer has their budget and their aesthetic preference mm -hmm. and you know their utility preference etc but at least they're not believing they're buying in the real thing and being sold an inauthentic product right and I mean this is perfect because it's segueing kind of into our whole idea of looking at this industry so to speak as a focal point where activism happens and I want to mention specifically that we're using that definition that we found in the Cambridge Dictionary, where it says that activism is noticeable action, which is used to achieve a result. And it feels, I think, that Lumkatha's position as a social enterprise, the mission that you're fostering in terms of making this an essential economic activity that continues, that continues to provide for artisans, is in this definite, fits this definition very so we've been asking everybody that we've had during this season, you know, do you see yourself as an activist? Well, uh, in India, the word activist itself has somewhat controversial connotation mm -hmm. that, in that it, you know, you're considered to be a communist. It's, it's, it's linked with very closely with uh, communist ideologies. And I've never really seen myself as an activist in that sense, because I've always thought of it like that. But when I was going through the, the brief that Monica sent me for this talk, I, I do feel that, I mean, I, I would be proud if I could be an activist. I, I don't think, I don't know if I've done enough yet to be called one, but I think that it, it would be nice to, to be able to say that you did something that caused real change. And... I think that especially, you know, because we work a lot 
with women weavers and we look at income generation it it really eventually if we can achieve scale without dilution of mission it it really does cause change because i remember once we were doing a training program and one of the ladies uh, one day she brought everybody from her family to that training center and told them this is my office with with a lot of pride and you know a lot of happiness and and i, I kept thinking that you know we have this theory that women need home based employment but actually this gives them a sense of purpose a sense of identity and uh, you know if if we can create that in in all the the women we work with it, it will eventually create change in you know societies that may be largely patriarchal still so i think yes i i hope to be an activist one day i think you already are do you think monica i think so no i was definitely going to second that i was thinking oh my goodness she hopes to be one what happens with the rest of us that don't have half the accolades experience and drive? (laughs) I was like having an existential crisis. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, If you don't think you are, then like, what are we doing? You know, (laughs) I think we should just leave. We'll all get there. That's the hope. Yeah. It's continuous. Well, I hope it's continuous because (laughs) I hope that in the many years that, that are to come that we can all, like Arisha says, hope to become (laughs) activists. Um, our last question for today Arushi and it's, it's been a pleasure before we go to the run, the wheel of questions which we'll talk about in a minute is how can we create change in this sector so in this case we're talking about hand looms but even if you want to talk about the artisanal sector in general and encompass you know natural dyes which I know you work in but we haven't touched upon in this episode and or is it confined to specific individuals such as the artisans themselves the government the private sector the in-between like social enterprises which are now flourishing um, and in a way becoming more if I can quote-unquote legitimate or is it even just the consumers that can make a change I think, I mean, everybody has to uh, sort of define their own personal theory of change, if you will. And, you know, be persistent about it because it's it's something you may never realize that it's, it's happened or it's not happened. But you, unless you keep persisting despite everything, it definitely won't happen. So... So I think that, and and yeah, I, I, I really appreciate your point about how social enterprises are gradually becoming legitimate because, you know, there, there has been this whole lack of mainstream support. You know, there's this sort of, oh, you guys are doing a good job, but, you know, it's all hard and, you know, real business isn't done this way. And, uh, you know, this, is, this isn't, the, you don't meet the numbers, you don't meet the you know the scale you don't meet the you know the volumes that 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 a real business has and i think that the the question we should be asking is is that desirable is meeting those numbers desirable is that scale desirable is is you know is what is more legitimate it's it's really nobody can define that for you and I think that uh, that definitely now there is a growing understanding that there have been a lot of social enterprises that have been able to show uh, high volumes of impact. And uh, of course, because we see the disastrous effect on the planet, people are being forced to, uh, you know, sort of introspect 
and hopefully that 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 continues but i think everybody needs to be realistic about what they can achieve and not be disheartened you know if you feel like i wanted to do x but i'm nowhere close to that this realization by the way has come to me in recent times it's not that i you know i had this zen approach always so that there there are moments when you just break down and you cry and you sob and you think you know that you made all the wrong choices in the world uh but yeah i think you just uh, you know as long as you can sort of keep that center inside you somewhere that you know this is what you want to do and maybe tomorrow that changes then you want to do something else but you still you know you're true to whatever you want to do at that point of time we will all i hope create change i mean that the more people there are who are you know sort of doing this introspection the better i couldn't even say it better arushi it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and before we go Uh, we have a tradition here at Can You Hear Us? And what we do is we have a virtual wheel of questions, which you will see very soon, where we spin it and we ask you kind of just a random question about yourself. And it can be your favorite meal or um, your favorite read right now. You're just indulging us and we hope the audience. All right, Monica, I'll hand it over to you. <laughs> Thank you, Madea. Oh, no. oh no well for our listeners the question is <laughs> so for our listeners the question is arushi are you a morning person or a night owl and if you want to expand on that please do so i'm definitely a night owl but i always want to be a morning person because on the rare occasion that i am i feel like it's been a very productive day and i managed to get a lot done yeah but eventually i mean it, it's always you know the the midnight hours that are most uh, that are somehow the most uh, productive definitely your genius time that's the yeah. <laughs> that's why i prefer the genius time after midnight Well, thank you for answering. Thank you so much again Arushi for joining us today and literally answering all the questions from ethical practices in handloom to being a night owl. <laughs> thank you so much. It, it was absolutely wonderful talking with both of you and you know I I wish you all the best as you begin your journeys of change. Oh, thank you. Thanks. So as always it has been our pleasure to host and record this interview. My name is Monica and my name is Madira and we'll see you after the summer for the second half of season 2. Until then wishing you all a great great break. Bye. Bye. As always we would like to thank our guest Arushi today for coming on. as well as the LSE Department of International Development for all its support especially the LSE IT Communications and Events Manager Ms. Deepa Patel and its officer Anna Dalton for all their help in promoting and distributing the episode finally to our team for researching recording and editing this episode our music is provided by a sound bank and our logo is created by Gorkavar see you all next time bye